peace, loved ones. This is Baraka Blue, and you are tuned into Path and Present Podcast. This episode I'm proud to introduce is a conversation I had with Tyson Amir. Tyson is an MC, a poet, um, a teacher. He's been teaching within the prisons for many years. Um, just an all-around good brother. And he is an author. He just wrote his first book. And so we sat down and talked about the book entitled Black Boy Poems. And he's an activist. He has the heart of a, you know, of a warrior, you know. But I'm reminded of the quote, it is for love that a revolutionary uh, fights. And I think he even quoted that in the podcast. So we just talked about the state of the world and his and his work and his struggling um, for justice on behalf of his people. And I think it was a beautiful and fruitful discussion, and I think you'll enjoy. So thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. You can support on Patreon. Uh, if you look at our SoundCloud, you see the link to Patreon, which allows you to support the podcast financially. Um, and for everybody who listens and enjoys the podcast, please uh, f- subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe also on SoundCloud. But also, if you can, write a comment um, on the iTunes page and you can rate the podcast as well. What that does is it helps the podcast to grow and to um, be exposed to more and more people. So without further ado, path and present, this is Tyson Amir. to see you it's probably been almost a year i haven't been in the bay for nine months <laughs> yeah man, that's since probably February. the last time then man and that's the trip bro like how but it's also a beautiful thing we've been able to see travel experience so much of the world but at the same time because brothers be busy since it's mm-hmm. been busy too you know like we don't get a chance to see each other as much as we would love to right yeah, man, I feel it. Like, I think, uh, but I think it's good, man. Like, I don't know about you, but uh, traveling outside of America has been like one of the best ways that I can have gained insight into what it means to be American. You know, just yeah. the whole experience, like to be taken out of your environment and then put back in it. You see your environment totally differently, you know? no doubt. Yeah. yeah, that's a big reality check on that, and gives you a deeper insight into the whole thing. And that was actually, man, like one of the big poems that I put in the book was born out of that process. Mm. I was in, I was in Rome, and I was reflecting on it. Like I wasn't even doing a whole bunch of writing at the time, but you know, I was preparing with with uh, our boy Rid to get ready to do the new Tyson on Beach project. Mm-hmm. And so I had been rhyming. So I was ready to do something, but I hadn't really started doing a whole bunch of writing. 
But I woke up, bro, from a dream, and I had these lines in my head from one of the big, big poems. It's in a book called Between Huey and Malcolm. Mm. And I felt like maybe it was the distance from the United States and like being removed from the context for a little bit, which gave me the opportunity to really access a whole bunch of that stuff and to throw it on paper in a real clear, concise way. That's what happened. Yeah, it's deep that you say that. And when you say that, I'm thinking about like, yeah, James Baldwin like was living in in, in Paris, right? Yeah. And then Malcolm himself, like his travels were so central yeah. to his own development. And uh, between Malcolm and Huey. Yeah, between Huey and Malcolm. So yeah, tell me about this book, man, because... You know, I remember like a couple years ago, you being like, yo, I've been like, man, I haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? You're like, I'm writing a book. <laughs> and you're like, this is the one, man. I'm about to change the game. And I'm like, all right. This is the game changer, bro. It's officially here. You feel me? Like, I really, you know, because like I, when I dropped the, the last album, Purpose, I had a PR dude and he was like, you should write a book. I was like, all right, whatever. So I drafted something. But it was more autobiographical, and I wasn't feeling it because I I was not I wasn't in that place to really be telling that story. So the idea of a book was in my head since that time, but I didn't know what I really wanted to write. And I knew when I wrote something, it had to be meaningful. And so when this idea manifested, we were just talking a little bit about like Baldwin and how he spent time out the country. Like one of the main influences. For writing, it was Richard Wright. Richard Wright did the same thing. He dipped. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? He dipped and he spent time in France. And I mean, he actually died there mm. because he felt he couldn't find freedom and liberation for himself and for his people in the United States. And so he made the decision, if I want to be free, I got to be somewhere else. So he dipped out. But like his book, Black Boy, was extremely influential for me mm-hmm. as just a man. You know what I'm saying? As a black man, as a creative, as a writer. And so I had revisited his work and a few weeks after that I was like I need to write this book and I had the idea for the book and that was it man yeah because I read the intro um I think most of it at least it's a lot huh yeah it was heavy <laughs> it was heavy man like what'd you read then bro for real I'm glad that you cracked a couple pages yeah I think I read it on uh just Amazon you know on oh, Amazon yeah. you can read a, you can read like a little sample they selection got that previews on it and uh, when it first came out, because I was out of the country, so I was like, all right, I can't get the book delivered to me, but I'm going to see what I can see. So I read that, and uh, it was, the, yeah, because your mother gave you that book, yeah. Black Boy. Yeah. So that's heavy, man. And it was dope. Yeah, you talking about your mom, and, uh, and I met your mom as well, and just hearing, like, because your mom was an avid reader. That's what I learned from that. Like, yeah. and, and so she exposed you to a lot of that because she was reading like black writers, black literature. All about so it. So you came up in that. Yeah. yeah. She was really committed to that, bro. Like when I think back on it, I'm like, dang, like that's deep. She really passed that baton. And I don't think she thought that one day I would write a book. Maybe she did. Mm-hmm. But she definitely established that as a foundation. And then... Like my older sister and me, we both were immersed in a world of black writers because of her. Mm-hmm. And she was about it. Like, you know, she would do whatever she needed to do to make sure that she was supporting black works and then making sure that we were aware of those works. And then the things that she felt like would really resonate with us, whether it was my sister or it was me, she made a point to 
you need to spend some time with this this author or this body of work right here. Mm. Yeah. So we were we were chilling last night, and you were mentioning about your great 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 grandfather and like yeah. tracing your lineage. And that's a, that's a, just a fascinating thing that your family has been having uh, annual family reunions for how many years? This will be twenty seventeen. Will be one hundred and thirty five. It's crazy. Yeah, continuing, unbroken chain. I mean, that's got to be like one of the longest in America. Like, is that's that? It, bro. So this is the book. That's that's the second edition. <laughs> History and genealogy, Bartlett and Rowena Flemister. Yeah. So is this on your father's or mother's that's side? Father's side, right there. And how many people come to these? Man, like. So when I went, <clears throat> I went for the first time last year and, you know, my cousins and my family, but they're saying sometimes we get like three, four thousand people at this thing. Because that many people are part of that family tree. So and everybody knows the stories of the patriarch and the matriarch of the family. Bartlett, Sweet, Flemister, and Rowena. Mm-hmm. So what, what's their story? They were both enslaved on the same plantation, the Flemister Plantation, in the state of Georgia, bro. And, and then they got their freedom? Because of the Civil War. Well, the 13th Amendment. So the story that I, I focus on a lot. So I'm I'm thankful and I'm grateful to be descendants of them, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, so Bartlett, he was forcefully separated from his family, so his wife, Rowena, and their firstborn son, Charles, who's also my great-great-grandfather. So mm-hmm. I'm through them, through their son, mm-hmm. the firstborn son. And so in 1863, while the Civil War was gone, Flemister, the cat that owned the plantation, he made the decision to sell Rowena and Charles to a plantation in Alabama. And so separate Separated the family. The family. And that's, that's part of the the historical tradition of America in many different ways, finding ways to separate families, not just black families, but Mm -hmm. black families for show, Mm -hmm. indigenous families. I mean, many other folks that we can bring in that become part of the different uh, immigration trends Mm -hmm. in America, but forcefully separated my family. But the reason why the family reunion is so important is because Rowena and Charles, they would not allow that institution to keep the family separated. Bro, she walked from Alabama back to Georgia to reunite the family. And I find so much pride in that because not only do I come from strong men, but I come from strong women. And it was the decision of my great, great, great grandmother to walk, bro, through Confederate America. You feel me? Mm. Like, this is the South, bro. I'm saying she's a woman. She got a nine-year-old son with her. Mm. She walked all the way back. Mm. Ain't no Bart. You feel me though? Like mm-hmm. and so when you start looking for like spiritual um mm-hmm. parallels, like there's so much, bro. And it was her. She stepped all that way, bro, risking life, limb, mm. and, and the life of her son because she felt it was so important for the family to be reunited. And so that's why we celebrate our family reunion every day because it commemorates that act. And then once they reunited, they said they wanted to make sure that the family stayed united. And so we would check in every year from that time on. 
And so that's the tradition that we carry on. And so like... So that's where it started. And so that's where like the preservation of the story was like... Because that's amazing like that, that it's just been passed on like that. Yeah, bro. You know, I mean, yeah. especially against all odds yeah. like that. Like when people are actively trying to erase your history. For real. You know what I mean? To mm-hmm. like make... Because, <laughs> I mean, most... Like very few white people know their lineage that yeah. far back. Like very few. And, um, you know, like we were talking about last night, I think just in the modern world, for some reason, people don't really acknowledge the importance of lineage. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. Like how many, I mean, of course, black people for the most part had it forcibly stripped from them. But even like European descendants in America, it was just like, they're, they think, oh, I'm white. They don't know. Yeah, I'm a quarter Italian, a quarter mm-hmm. Irish, a quarter English, quarter whatever. You know what I mean? But like most people are some admixture. And yeah. it's only a few generations back. It's amazing how rapid. And that also, as you were mentioning in that book, what is it? The history of whiteness? Yeah, the history of white people. The history of white people. That, that was... It was encouraged yeah. because your traditions are holding you back from full access to this category. Yeah. And, but if you throw those off, then uh, the racial bribe, then you're in. You're so there's a lot of incentive to yeah. forget about, oh, I'm Sicilian or forget, oh, we have these traditions from, from you know, the Celtic peoples in, yeah. in Ireland, et cetera, you know. And uh, just stigmatizing in my own family, like my, like I was mentioning to you last night, my great grandma, my Gigi, who I met, she lived to be 101. And she was embarrassed about the fact that she was Portuguese. And her name was Margarita Rodriguez, but she changed her name to Margaret, anglicized it. You know what I mean? And um, she married someone who was non-Portuguese, non-Catholic who was Swedish, mm. you know, kind of like as white as, as fair as you could get. Yeah. And, um, but her family actually disowned her because she married someone who was non-Portuguese and non-Catholic. That was the big thing. Oh. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So then my grandma didn't know her, her grandma and them because she was, but anyway, so there's all these strange pressures not that far back yeah. in our history too. That, that create these weird, very strange things. And I think, you know, just from reading the introduction to your book, it's about, and I'm, I'll let you kind of like, if you were to give just a like summary of really what the topic is or, or what, it, what it's about. But that's why I brought up your, your ancestry, because it really is about like lineage, like a tradition, yeah. a history. It is. And, and being aware of that, because... You know, it's like if you don't know that, if you don't know where you're from, how can you know where to go? For real, mm. off top. And so, like, there are a lot of different things that I tried to do with the book. And hopefully I was able to accomplish those things with the book. But one of the main things is the idea that we belong to people who have been impacted by this monstrosity, bro. Like this machine that was erected out of capitalist greed, no moral or ethical foundation, no spiritual compass, no anything like that, man, and has colonized, imperialized, exploited, enslaved, 
so many people and lands throughout the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you get people who, like your family, made the decision. But I mean, how are you going to be? Why? Like, what what testament is that when somebody's ashamed to be what they are? Mm-hmm. Because you want to opt into this other thing to make it easier for yourself. And that's understandable. We can understand mm-hmm. somebody who's being confronted with these different options. Right. I want to choose this, the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever I got to do to do that so it's easier for me and my people, let me go ahead and do that. But I, that's the situation. That's the historical foundation of the present that we're in, which is going to shape our future. And if you're aware of that, you have to do something about that. And so... I belong to people who have been fighting for their freedom since day one. Mm-hmm. And all of us represent that to a certain degree. Some of us understand it. Some of us want to ignore it. Some of us put our head in the sand and all that. So in the book, I make that argument in many different ways. Mm-hmm. We're not free. Mm-hmm. In order for us to become free, what we have to do is come together. And so the book tries to provide a lot of information for establishing that context for the world that we live in and why we should come together in order to work to manifest our freedom and our liberation. And it's in line with the different spiritual traditions, especially, of course, like the example of the Prophet Muhammad mm-hmm. and how in order for peace to exist, which is like a, a rough translation of mm-hmm. Islam, mm-hmm. but like a, a path of that or a way of bringing peace to people, we have to minimize those things that are causing harm or disrupting that. Mm-hmm. And so we got to be aware of those things and then work mm-hmm. to counter it within ourselves and within the world that we live in. You know, try to bring that to everybody. And so Black Boy Poems in many ways is calling folks to a deeper understanding of who they are, of the context in which they live in, to push them to make that commitment, brother, try to make this thing better for everybody because mm. it needs to be. Right. You know? And I use the medium, which I'm most familiar with, which is hip hop, but then also the different scholarly traditions that I've been influenced by. And then I speak from the lens, which I know best, which is the black lens, mm-hmm. but it's representative of all peoples who have been mm-hmm. oppressed and colonized, you know, mm-hmm. so... I just do it the way that I do it. Mm. But when we're really looking at the big picture, this is a story about all of us. You know? mm. Yeah. So how is it structured? Bro, I did it. I've been thinking about that a lot, right, man? And so I think part of it is like maybe even you can look at it from a musical lens. It's called, It's kind of like an album, right? So... I have 16 main chapters in the book. Each chapter begins with a poem or lyrics from a song that I've written that focus on what I consider different aspects of the Black experience. The first poem I have in there is called 41 Shots. It's the first poem I ever wrote. It was in response to Amadou Diallo Mm -hmm. being killed by NYPD back Mm -hmm. in 99, right? Mm -hmm. So I start with the poem. And then after that, I have a, a section which is a really brief section called Reflections of a Black Boy, which I use to kind of segue into the greater body of the chapter. And in that, I record loose thoughts. Some of them are poetic thoughts. Some of them are quotes. But they're ideas that are connected to the content of the poem and what would be the content of the chapter. But then like preparing the reader to go into the main essay, which which is the main body of the chapter. And then Mm. after that, I have these different essays, which explain more about the poem, more of the history, do more of the social political commentary and anything else that I feel is necessary. But that's how each chapter is formulated 
And I think it's a good, it, it gives good pacing to the book because like it gives you a lot of different things to interact with. So you right. might just want to write, read the poems. Okay. You read the poem and then you're like, oh, I like that. Let me see what he's going to say about the poem after that. Mm-hmm. So then it gets people, it's kind of like a carrot yeah. that brings people into the book. Right, right. And then also breast using like the culture that we've been raised with, which is hip hop mm-hmm. to be more of like an instructor, like a, an instructional way of, of dealing with this stuff, of dealing with our reality. And, you know, many people want to not use hip hop as an educational tool, but it's a very powerful tool. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So it has all of those elements at the same time. Yeah, that's dope. And it makes me think of the fact that, like, in West Africa to this day, and traditionally all across Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, you know, within the Islamic tradition, uh, most subjects were actually taught by a poem. There you go. So even if it was grammar or logic or rhetoric or things that you wouldn't even associate with art necessarily, what it would be is like, as you know, there would be a poem and it rhymes, which facilitates memorization. And then there would be a sharh, which means a commentary or expansion. And the sharh would basically comment on the poem. There you go. And so if you studied the sharh, the, the commentary in depth, with a teacher and you had memorized the poem, then it would, the the kind of like methodology of it is that that will stick in your head because then any, all you have to do is remember the poem and then it will open up the whole commentary for you. You know what I mean? It's like pegs. The poem is like pegs that you, or doors that you hold, that you, it opens up into this whole thing. So it's like a, it's an amazing, uh, epistemology because it's like okay it's not just memorizing rote memorization but it is rote memorization plus deep understanding yeah because of this i understand is if you got that in your memory the poem then you'll never forget what it what it what it exactly. opens up into yeah because it's always connected to that other stuff and then the other part which i like to to bring to it is like when we look at the Quran and what the Quran represents, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be like the message for all of mankind from from the time that it was revealed until the time that human beings are going to be no more. And like looking at like how some of my teachers have tried to highlight how other prophets or messengers, they were supposedly strengthened with the thing that resonated with the people at that time. So like Musa Adi Salaam, mm-hmm. he was given magic, right? And so like you had the people that were performing all these different magic tricks in the time of, of Pharaoh. But then Musa came with the illest stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you do your tricks, but my joints is real. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And then like uh, Jesus or Isa Salam, he was supposedly given like these miracles because of people of his mm-hmm. time. That's what they were doing. You had a whole mm-hmm. bunch of cats who were like performing these miracles. Mm-hmm. And then he came with his joint, right? And then the prophet, like his thing was the Arabs were into eloquent speech, mm-hmm. like poetic, powerful, deep speech. And so like the Quran was the most eloquent of all speech, so much so that it's still like the standard of classical Arabic to this day, right? But what that means to me, like pulling from that is, we still live in a time where eloquent, powerful, poetic speech impacts people. And like, what is a better example of that than hip hop? You yeah, feel me? Yeah. And so people want to do a lot of stuff to try to to bash and belittle 
the legacy of hip hop or the importance of hip hop. But I mean, casters, they flipping things in a poetic way, bro. And they trying to tell their stories. And so it's a powerful medium. And I'm not trying to say that it's on par with the Quran yeah, or anything like that. But there, there are similarities in terms of the structure and what it does in terms of impacting people. So for folks who have some mastery over that tradition or, or have been initiated in that tradition, to be able to use that to impart a message which is extremely powerful and relevant, it's necessary. And so... Like we have that. I mean, you have that ability, bro. You got bars, you know what I'm saying? Get your bars up like your phone don't work, homie. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, you know, when you got that ability, bro, there's a responsibility to do something with it. Yeah. That's why I try to use that. SubhanAllah. And, you know, like a lot of people like bemoan the the death of poetry or the loss of poetry, like whereas in traditional cultures it was so central. But um, in many ways, I feel like what you're saying, and I've thought about this, like within the black community, the poets are still revered. No doubt. They're still honored. It may, may, but not so much within the white community. Like who are some great white poets? You don't, you don't really, but like, and through hip hop is like carried on that tradition. And just the beginning of hip hop from the last poets, Gil Scott Heron. I mean, just like that whole. James Brown. Amazing. James Brown. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. For real. You know? And so, and then you think of like the griots and that just that tradition tradition and and it's uh you know i think i've thought about this a lot especially with this trump election is like i think human beings in general are in a a deep identity crisis and like I was just in Europe, and Europeans are going through a deep identity crisis, which is why they're the, all the anti-immigrant stuff. And mm-hmm. like, think about the French. Like, no, you can't wear a headscarf because it's not French. And like, you know, what does it mean to be French? And then there's this like, there's this push and pull between people in Europe that are like, well, it's whatever. We're, we want a multicultural society that, mm-hmm. you know, celebrates all the diverse cultures and the peoples that are here. And then you have other people that are like, no, yeah. our culture is this. And then what is our culture? And, you know, <clears throat> they've thrown off Christianity by and large, especially in Europe. Yeah. Here, people are still Christian by and large. But in Europe, like less than 10% of people go to church. Like they're not Christian. Yeah. So, okay, we may have been Christian for 2000 years, but not anymore. Okay, so what are we? Are we the Greek philosophy and Roman? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Is it this literature? Is this is it science? Is it is it is it whiteness? Is yeah. it is it our food and our? And there's like this deep identity crisis, and things are just changing so fast. And then within America, obviously, I think that just the whole Trump phenomenon highlights the fact that. <laughs> There's also this deep identity crisis in America. Yeah. And white people, all of a sudden, a lot of white people, you know, are questioning like what it means to be a white person. Mm-hmm. And some people taking that one way, like that means, you know, maybe you could even say that the traditional way, like we're not black, we're not brown, we're not this. So, you know, this defining yourself vis a vis the other. Yeah. And then other people, you know, being in the more kind of like, camp like well no we we want uh multiculturalism and this and that and but also still i think i see 
within that, you know, the left kind of multicultural camp, people still not really sure how to define themselves. Exactly. And like, what am I though? Yeah. You're like, you know, and then there becomes a lot of within the kind of like democratic thing. It's like, okay, we support gay rights. We support women's rights. We support black rights. We support immigrant rights to a certain extent, as long as you're just like us. Yes. As long as you're not challenging the status quo, as yes. long as you're not actually challenging, ch- challenging the economic hierarchy too much and all these type of things. Yeah. And so it just becomes this like identity politics in the, in the most trivial sense of that word. Exactly. So I don't know, maybe you could speak on that. Yeah, bro. I mean, what you're saying is real. So like you have, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, I talk about, so there's a section kind of in the introduction where I go into the two terms which are byproducts of Western civilization, which are white and black, and they become linguistic markers for groups of people. But within the black experience, like we've internalized it in a specific way, and we've tried to find a way to empower ourselves through that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, though, through the lens of the institution, black is all these negative things. And so I pull definitions from Webster's, Merriam-Webster's, mm-hmm. and Oxford, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I went in all these cats. They gave me permission to use this stuff, too, which is a trip, mm-hmm. right? But, like, how it's very clear, you know, and Malcolm, he illustrated mm-hmm. that, looking at these definitions and how the definitions for black are filled with pejoratives. But then the definitions for white, they're filled with all these positive characteristics, right? So you have that. But then within that, because these are arbitrary social fabrications, you know what I'm saying? Like... People opt into those things, but by doing that, like we were talking about earlier, there's a racial bribe or there's stuff that you have to give up in order to become part of that thing. And so you can't just cut off the people's tradition and it doesn't matter who you are. So like in the black experience, we know how that happened. We were forcefully removed from our ancestral lands and from our traditions. And so we tried to hold tight to whatever we had. We didn't voluntarily give those things up because we thought that we were going to get something better. Now, on the other end, moving to the the classification of people that are defined as white, people made those decisions because they thought they might be getting something that can help them. Mm -hmm. And so they gave up a lot of that Mm -hmm. stuff. But you, like the the DNA don't forget, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. these traditions are embedded deep within us. And if you are not respecting those or paying homage to those or connected with that, and then you're connected to something that's a false ideal, it cannot sustain you. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, we've been fed so much that it's fake, it's artificial, and it comes up in different ways and manifests in different ways. But then, in order to keep that realization away, we'll do all these wild and crazy things. And so, some people are claiming that this vote for Trump reflects that. So, in order to keep this realization that our society is changing, maybe we should be more, have more equity in our society. Maybe we should change the way that we're doing things. Nope. We're going to elect this dude and we're just going to try to go over here and we're going to ride until we die. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people are going to make those decisions. But people are impacted negatively by the institution of race, by all these oppressive institutions. It's going to reflect in them differently, but we all are suffering as a result of it. I represent the people who have suffered in very tangible ways. Mm. And so we fight against it. And some people that represent the same community that I represent are trying to find ease within that system. But we come from a very long and rich tradition 
of people who have fought against that. And I proudly place myself in that spectrum and I'm trying to make contributions in that way. And this is a major step in doing that, bro, because there's so much confusion in our time. And to have people who can speak and bring that historical perspective, but do it in the language of the people of today, mm-hmm. I think it's essential. And so that's why I'm like really pleased with it. And then like my parents, they proud, bro. Like I made my parents proud like never before in my life with this joint, bro. Yeah. Like that's ill within itself. But the book is, it, it deals with some of that. But you're real, man. I mean, you're right with that. Like there's so much identity crisis and... Mm-hmm. It, it it's sad, bro. Like our people are hurt. And you know, I remember when I was when I was young, man, um, teenager, and also just coming up in hip hop. And you know, I think because I was like, I didn't have to think about race as early as like my black friends. Yeah, because I remember like it was just whatever. While the <clears throat> same, I, you know, in my family. You know, kind of like liberal. Everybody's the same. You know what I mean? But I didn't really get the whole concept. So I remember like the first consciousness where people were like, no, we're different. We have different experiences. And being like bothered by that. Like, no, what what do you mean? But then through hip hop, like you say, man, like hip hop is a tool. Like, you know, I was like, I had the line in the song. I was like, 80s babies, a generation of, uh, a generation of, what's that? Oh, yeah, I said, 80s babies, a generation of failed schools, broken homes, rappers raised us through the headphones. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, but I remember, because it was through hip hop and then the people that I was, that I was like, oh, I got to read about Malcolm because that's what's my heroes here. Yeah. And then the Panthers and all that. But I remember reading Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice when I was, I don't know, 16, 17. And he made an interesting statement. And I don't, that book was probably written in the 70s or something, right? But he said something. He said, in our generation, uh, the white people coming up, the young white youth, at some point, they realize there's not a lot of white heroes. Yeah. Because the, the John Waynes and the presidents and the et cetera, they realize like a lot of these people... Uh, have blood on their hands and have a lot of darkness and are kind of complicit in, uh, you know, the the harm of other people. And so if you're coming up and you want good and you have a sincere heart, it, uh, it's like, man, what should my relationship be to this category that I have inherited? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel like, it takes a lot to to work through that, and a lot of people, um, you know, don't do it, or you know, they haven't been given the tools to do it because it's like, uh, and but then this ties into a lot of things also, which we, like we were talking about before, about like cultural appropriation. Yeah, because then if I'm like, all right, young, you know kid in America, growing up in, in hip-hop, in multicultural urban America, and my friends are from all these different backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, 
And my heroes are mostly black and brown people. Yeah. But then there's the legacy of like white supremacy and just the, the various privileges that I have in that. And even the fact like where my grandparents could live and own a house. Yeah. And then that their ability to then, you know, sell that house 20 years later and make all this money and then that be passed down through the generations. Yeah. All that stuff before I was born, generations before I was born, it plays into, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, um, but then, because, you know, it gets real interesting because it's like, well, how do I authentically be like, well, my hero is Black Elk and my hero is, um, you know, Malcolm X and my hero is these people. And how do I, like, in the most beautiful and... uh true way because that's another thing that like at this point and a lot of it was through islam and through my spiritual uh practice that i can i I personally am grateful for who i am and my ancestry like i believe that allah chose to manifest my soul in this body in this family in this society for a reason. It's yeah. all a test, just like yours as well. And yeah. like, you know, I believe on my personal level that our soul before it came to this realm had something to do with understanding like this is like I'm supposed to be in this space. Like there's a wisdom in it. And then uh but you know, there's so many layers and you know, not everybody has been given like the experiences that we have and like the the education and the teachers and the the guides to like because it takes a lot, man, to work through all that. And yeah. it's real easy to just be like, to not do the work. But even with that, bro, like we were saying, and not going to drop anybody's name. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but like when some of our teachers yeah. are ignoring that same reality, you feel me? Like for whatever reason, and we don't know what's in the hearts of the souls of these people, but the the context that you just laid out was very real. And... It's a difficult line to navigate. And how many people do we have that are in positions of authority or are they are our teachers are like, yeah, we really need to focus on how to deal with this situation so we can do this appropriately so we can best serve ourselves and our communities. But what we have happening is people saying we don't even want to talk about that. We ain't even going to deal with that. So then it becomes our responsibility to try to figure that out. And so that's why I like. I love and I appreciate who you are, bro. And like the same thing, like it's a, like we brothers for real. You know what I'm saying? And so you see your boy over here doing something that's not right. You got to pull me up and, you know, vice versa. We do that for each other because we're really trying to figure this out. And it becomes our responsibility to do that because we live in this time in this place. And we see these problems. We're living through these things. And we can't make that same decision that some of our our elders have made, or we don't want to have that conversation. We can't. We got to do that. That's the only way that we really going to do this thing the right way. And we might make some mistakes along the way, but still, we can't be afraid to do that. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our community. We owe it to the tradition that we represent mm. to do that and not be afraid of that moment. It's real, man. And like, I think the whole Obama presidency really brought it to the fore that like most Americans... Uh, on all sides, but I think particularly white Americans, uh, 
they're really not ready to have a conversation about race and like stare in its face. Like mm. it's so uncomfortable for people, you mm. know what I mean? But uh you know, if we if we look at the Muslim community and you know, particularly what you say is like you know, Dr. Sherman Jackson said something that I never forgot because he said uh the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he said to his people, La ilaha illallah. And when he said that, that was the most revolutionary statement you could make. Yeah. Because he said, there is no God but God. And they really believed, they lived in a world in which, no, there's multiple deities. And our tribe has a God and their tribe has a God and they're warring over it and this and that. He said, it was the most... It challenged the fundamental framework of their whole existence. Yeah. Like you couldn't say anything more revolutionary. And then he said, now, if you were to go to the average per- person walking around the street in America and say, there is no God but God, most people would be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no doubt. And what he said was deep, though. He said, now, has that statement become less revolutionary? And he said, no. But we have failed to identify the idols of our time. Mm-hmm. And so that's the problem. Yeah. You know, because the idols are greed, materialism, white supremacy, all these idols that, that, that people are kneeling at the <clears throat> altar of and that are people are going to war over and people are destroying, you know, the planet over mm-hmm. and, and and all these individuals. So with that in mind, you know, a lot of within the Muslim community, there can be some sophisticated conversations about the idols of, you know, even materialism or the idols of, you know, modern, the modern world. Yeah. But outside of the black Muslim experience, you really see people shying away from articulating la ilaha illallah at the idol, one of the central idols of our time, I would argue, of white supremacy. You're right, bro. That's deep. I love that. I love how you set that up. And like, I mean, Sherman Jackson is an intellect. My brother beyond. He's on it. He's on it. But that's ill. And that's, it's a, it's a very, revolutionary statement, the most revolutionary statement, because you're putting a a higher principle over everything else, bro. And so, like, I in a lot of the reflections that I've been having recently, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of different stuff, man, but some of the hadith literature that that has called to me is like the Prophet, he said that he didn't fear shirk for his people, but what he feared was money. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, White supremacy is born out of a context of capitalism. It's born out of the, the context of imperialism and colonization. And so, like, you can't separate those things. Like, slavery was the backbone of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And through capitalism, this white supremacist ideology comes through. And then many of us have been, we represent people who have been colonized by that philosophy. So then we have the white savior complex. We've been influenced by white supremacy. We've tried to get as close to the oppressor or the master, you know what I'm saying, as we can to try to find comfort within the chains that we have around us. 
So we've erected these institutions that are flawed by this bigger superstructure that's around us. And we, not want to, we don't want to call that out as the idol or as one of these big idols that's in the room because some of us are comfortable with these institutions that we've created. We can take care of our families. We have a little bit of fame behind our name. We can publish some books and we can get these books to be sold. You know what I'm saying? And so like, there's that money aspect of it, which it, you know, there's a, I think it's a, a statement from Yama Ali and he talked about like poverty chokes the intellect. But at the same time though, the flip side to it is an abundance of wealth can choke the intellect as well. Mm. You feel me? It's like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the flip side of the mirror of that extreme. I got all this bread. I ain't really thinking because I'm really about this bread. Yeah. I'm extra poor. I ain't really thinking because I'm trying to get out of this state that I'm in. You feel me? And so like some of us have found ourselves comfortable in literally the belly of the beast. And we've erected these institutions which mirror the the flawed aspects of the culture that, you know what I'm saying, we trying to survive in. And we ain't calling those idols out, bro. And we at those altars and we, we offering whatever we offer into them. Mm-hmm. And it's killing us. And they're killing us at the same time. So we're fighting a battle on our on the inside that we're losing, and we're losing externally as well. That's a bad place to be, bro. And then like one of the quotes that I use is from Sun Tzu. He talked about like how he said, the person that knows himself and knows their enemy will be victorious in every battle. The person that knows themselves but doesn't know their enemy will be victorious in every other battle. The person that doesn't know themselves and doesn't know their enemy is destined to lose in every single battle. Mm. We fall in that last category, bro, because mm-hmm. we don't even know who we are, what we're supposed to be fighting on the inside, and we certainly don't understand the, the nature of the enemy that's on the outside. Mm. We losing, bro. Mm. Yeah? And that's why that, that idol piece is ill, because right. we like we think that we're doing it right. Right. Yeah, Brother Ali said something you know, we were in Seattle and we were speaking to a group of like activists and he was like, you know, because a lot of the kind of activists on the left, like were at each other's throats and like, but you don't line up with me a hundred percent. You just line up with me 99%. So forget you. And like, there's all this like infighting. And he was saying, you know what we need, man, we need to sow wolf for activists. We need like Sufism for activists. And really what he was saying is like, we need to understand the heart, the spiritual diseases of the heart, the ego, jealousy, uh, all these subtle things, because they, if we allow them to be unchecked, they will stop us from being able to do the work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's one of the sad things that's happened is like, uh, if you read some of these uh, papers and some of these think tanks and some of these government things, (laughs) You know, they're like the powers that be, they're talking about, yo, we need to encourage Sufism amongst the Muslims because that'll pacify people. Yeah. You know, they just focus on spirituality and they will turn away from the political. And what's ironic about that is if you study history, you know that the Sufi orders often were the, 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 the ones who countered colonialism the strongest. You got a whole order of people. 500, 1,000, they're all coming together, real, really living together, brothers and sisters, sharing their food, doing dhikr all the time, praying, fasting. And they're like, oh, someone's coming to take over our place? And the sheikh says, go? Bismillah. Yeah. And so 
You know, you got like Abdul Qadir Jazairi in uh, Alge- uh, Algeria, who was he was a master of Ibn Arabi. Like he was a mystical philosopher, and mm-hmm. he fought, you know, the uh, the French. But then he was principled too, yeah. because he he wasn't because then he was exiled to Syria, and the story was one of the stories is because he was still a general. He had all you know his his men. And there were some Jews, Christian Jew, uh, Christian, uh, Christian Syrians rather. And what happened was, for some reason, the Muslims got upset with the Christians, and so they were like going to have some collective punishment. Like, let's just slaughter all of them. Yeah. And he actually rounded up his entire troops, Muslim, you know, mujahideen, and he he sur- he surrounded and protected the Christians. And said, if you want to, you know, kill them, you have to kill us first. You see what I'm saying? So he was principled. He was like, they're not the problem. They didn't do anything. We, ha- it's, it's our obligation to defend them. So, but, you know, Tasawwuf in it, itself is, is ilm nafs. It's understanding the nafs. Yeah. It's the science of understanding the self. Psychology, you know, the psyche is the soul, the study of the soul. So it's like, this is a science. And exactly what Sun Tzu said is like knowing yourself is, is first and foremost, you know. Whoever knows himself knows his Lord, knows his Rabb. And um, I think that's the liberation from all of this stuff because, you know, a lot, the way I think about it is like the horizontal and the vertical. Yeah. On the horizontal plane, if I'm of European ancestry, that means something. That means something in how the world reacts to me, how people respond to me. Yes, and we can affirm that. But if you just affirm that, then it gets into essentializing the categories of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Like if I say you're essentially black and I'm essentially white and we're totally different, we can never be the same because of that. Then I've just made an you know, impermeable barrier between us. Yeah. We're not the same. But if I acknowledge we don't have the same historical experience and the fact that I am seen in the category of whiteness and you in the category of blackness means very real things for how the world reacts and responds to us in our lived experience, affirming that, but then the vertical, but saying, on the other hand, we are souls and flesh. And that we, those categories are ultimately at the highest level, not real. Mm -hmm. They're real and live reality, but on the level of the spirit, they're illusory. That we are one. Yeah. That we are, la ilaha illallah. Yeah. That, that if, if God is one, that means we are one people from God. And so then if we can affirm both of those, see with both eyes, have some depth perception, then I can say, you're my brother. I'm not just like your ally. I kind of, I mean, I get that, but like some, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm not just your ally. I'm your brother. You see what I'm saying? And I have a different lived experience. Acknowledging that too, because a lot of white people are really uncomfortable with the whole thing and say, look, man, why do you keep bringing up race? Why black lives matter? Mm-hmm. Why are you trying to live in that? Like we're one. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you negate somebody's whole lived experience yeah. and you, you know, end up not dealing with the very real issues. But if you only say, 
we're different. We have, you know what I mean? Like then I feel like you also can go to that extreme. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And so I feel you on the, the, the horizontal and the vertical. And that's really getting into that deeper understanding. And like, you know, we had talked a little bit last night and I used the, the Che Guevara quote about mm-hmm. like a revolutionary is guided by a deep sense of love. That's that deeper joint. You know what I'm saying? Like we can affirm the reality that we exist in. And we can list all the things that are the backdrop of the society that has caused these problems, this confusion that is oppressing, that's exploiting. We can we can clearly demonstrate that on a biological or physiological level that we are the same as human beings and as, as a species, you know what I'm saying, as mankind. And then we can even illustrate the history of how white was created, how black was created. We can look at the historical trajectory of these institutions and how they developed and how they've evolved over time. Like we can do that, but like with all of that information, what does it mean? What is it going to drive us to? And so like that reminds me of pulling another example from Islam, like the, the prophet how he was described by his wife as Aisha, as he was the Quran. He had the understanding, bro, but like he lived that as well. So that's a different thing. Like, we can affirm it. We can understand it. We can call it out. But what are you going to do with that information? Like, how does it manifest in you? And then also, like, the idea of Quran, it's not mushaf. It's not paper. Mm-hmm. It's not written. It's it's spoken. It's embodied. It's how you, mm-hmm. you represent it, how that thing manifests in you. So we've inherited this tradition, and it's a beautiful tradition. But what are we going to do? How is it going to empower us to deal with the reality that we're facing right now? And when we have people who are get caught up in these different spiritual idols or these social idols, and it it blocks them or prevents them from doing the things that the tradition should be informing them to do, that becomes problematic because that's that's when it's not holistic, where it's dean, where it's an entire way of life. You can't be blocking all certain aspects of the way of life or the lived experience of certain people. We can't do that. You know what I'm saying we're a communal people, like. So law is supposed to happen in community. You go, we, we line up, you know what I'm saying? Like you got brothers on your left and on your right, sisters there, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a communal experience. We have to understand that and we work for that whole thing. But we have, there are some ideological idols, and some you know, materialistic idols or whatever we might say that are existing right now in that community. But then the Muslim community is a microcosm of the larger human community. Right. These things exist in many different places. Folks are dealing with it in their churches and their synagogues mm-hmm. and their temples and their secular settings in their artistic enclaves. Mm-hmm. These things are there. And I believe we really have to get to that place, bro. And because that's where people really begin to take action based on what it is that they know and the convictions that they have in their heart and then become a people guided by a true moral or an ethical understanding. And from that place can hopefully have an impact on this planet and on people to make something different and hopefully better, you know? But there's so much in the way and the society profits off of that. We're just going to keep throwing this stuff out there, keep people distracted. Okay, yeah, you you stay clicked up with your folks over here. You set tripping with these folks over here. You know what I'm saying? Stay with your little folks over there or do your own thing by yourself. Be this little individual. Get all these mm-hmm. things around you to make you feel more better and comfortable about yourself. You know what I'm saying? Get on social media. Get your likes up. I'm saying it's a, it's a full-time full-scale operation of confusion and misdirection and sleight of hand, bro. It's heavy. Mm. They're on it. And they control the joint and they make money off of all of it, too. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. They got it sewn up. But that that horizontal and that vertical, it represents a deeper understanding. We got to penetrate deeper if we want to survive this thing and possibly change it for the better. Because this thing is going to kill us off, man. All of us. And those who are making the decision are trying to get closer to the folks who are supporting the system. You on the wrong side. Right. And not even trying to be all dualistic and like relegate a conversation to that. But it's you can't support the oppression. You can't support the oppressor. And it's important for us to be able to critically analyze ourselves and see what are our actions doing? Are they moving us closer to that? Or are they moving us in a, in a direction where we're challenging that for the sake of who we are, our progeny, and for all people on this planet? Because we're supposed to, you know, um, that, well, the Muslim community identifies itself as the, the caretakers of the, the vice generants of this planet. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a responsibility, bro. You can't just be going along to get along with the mm-hmm. folks. That don't work. Yeah, so last night, I mean, we had an amazing conversation with a lot of beautiful people. And one thing that came out was this idea that, yeah, um, Islam in America, if we talk about like first settlement, first community. Yeah. I mean, it was a black liberation movement religion. You know what I mean? The whole thing. And I think we should we should definitely talk about it. I think more people are talking about it now within our circles, but maybe not outside of it, is that then you have civil rights, 1965, because of the civil rights, the immigration laws changed. Yeah. Because of the struggles and the blood, sweat, and tears of black people and those that supported them, in their quest for, for liberation, uh, all of a sudden, the law changes in America. Now, non-Europeans can come. Yep. Before that, if you're not in European, good luck. And so, this allows Muslims to come here because of civil rights, directly. So now, you have masses of Muslims coming in the last four decades, and... Um, setting up communities, which, I mean, if we lay it out, because of the immigration policy in America, the Americans were like, we only want the best and the brightest. We got our unskilled labor from south of the border. Yeah. So we just want the doctors, the engineers, the educated, the urban elites from these countries. So that's why, you know, the average, you know, Desi or Arab, I mean, how many Muslim American doctors do we have? It's crazy, right? Yeah. Engineers. Lawyers. Lawyers. You know, I mean, now in Europe, it's a whole different story. Because in Europe, they basically took people from the formerly colonized lands yeah. as the quote-unquote unskilled labor. They took village folks. So in the UK, mostly people from Indian subcontinent. In France, it's mostly people from North you know, Africa, North Africa like and that. Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And in Germany, for some reason, it's mostly Turks, even though they didn't colonize the Turks. But anyway, so, but if we take the American context, you have an influx of Muslims. And then we should notice there was a whole nother group of basically refugees 
So you have Somalis, Palestinians, mm. Afghanis coming in. And they're, a lot of them in the inner city and they're poor. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's a whole different. But um, a lot of the immigrant Muslim community doing really well for themselves. You know, living, bread. living in the suburbs in the cul-de-sac and integrating fairly well. Maybe they have different food. They have a little bit different dress, but believe those kids growing up mm-hmm. here, they're wearing jeans and t-shirts and, 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 and baseball caps. Yeah. Whereas if you go with the, 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 in, the Indian Pakistani kids, you know, children of immigrants in the UK, a lot of them, they're still wearing traditional clothes because they're kind of ghettoized in their own bubbles. Yeah. Whereas in America, like the, the push like that, the, what, what, did, what was it? The, the racial bribe. Racial bribe. Because, yeah. you know, uh, Muhammad can be Mo and he can play on the basketball team. And yeah, he has more olive complexion or whatever. But more or less, his family has money. His mom drives a, a you know, a, a minivan. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's, they, they got it. His dad's a, a, a doctor. He's going to a nice college, and he might be in the MSA. But anyway, the point being, what really came out last night, though, is then, okay, but then post-9-11. And then, you know, now we're 15 years deep into the war on terror and just Muslims being vilified, and now Trump, and now these hate, you know, uh, people getting attacked in the street and stuff like that, and women getting their hijab torn off. And... Unfortunately, and but maybe understandably, to kind of assimilate into the escalator upwards, yeah. people were uh, most, the vast majority of immigrant Muslims, they were not aligning themselves with the struggles not of the historically marginalized peoples. Yeah. And so strategically, it was a huge mistake because now, you know, you're getting marginalized as well. And so even if you're a doctor or a lawyer, like that's, they're still coming for you, man. They yeah. want you on the registry. Like it doesn't matter. And so, but, and then here's the other thing that's happening now is these individuals are to a certain extent, to a large extent, though they never had really interaction with the black Muslims with, and they try to stay away from it. But now trying to capitalize on it or celebrate it or exactly. say, Malcolm, you know, Malcolm X, let's celebrate that. Or Muhammad Ali, let's celebrate that. Or, you know, like you were mentioning last night, the, the black Muslims that are in the Olympics yeah. from America. Yeah, we have Muslims in the Olympics. But um, it's very troublesome that there is not actually a true unity like, okay, within the black community of Muslims, what are the issues? Yo, in that suburban mosque where they just spent $7 million for a chandelier. <laughs> for real. Or, you know, or they bought this this whole, you know, they bought an old Costco and turned it into a mosque yeah. in a business park. Uh, are we really, is, is, is Islam really a brotherhood? Is it really about checking the idols? Is it really about, you know what I mean? Like what Abu Bakr Hat, you know, did for Bilal, is that really about the ones with wealth being like, take half mine, you're my brother? Yeah. You know what I mean? Is that really, because that's, that's what we've been taught what Islam is. 
we talk about that. That's what the khutbah is talking about. Mm-hmm. When the, you know, the Meccans came to Medina and the prophet say, okay, you're a brother of him. You're a brother of him. Yep. He paired them up. Look after them. He said, person. okay, so I got, I got a house. So I'm going to split my house in two. You now got a house and I got a house on this side. Yeah. You know, half my wealth. Point being is like, uh, we really, at this time, the pressure that is that is that is on Muslims and the pe- pressure that is on immigrants in general and brown and black people in general, and then those others that care about them uh, in a Trump presidency, and arguably always, of course, when, but. Now it's like front and center. Now there's a whole party which is like actually making it the overt platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're not going to actually unite now and, and do a real deep muhasaba, like self-accounting, yeah. uh, then we're in trouble, man. All of us. You know? I agree, bro. And that's, that's part of the reason why I've been thinking so much about this because what the, the book is about, it's calling to people to have a deeper understanding of who they are, where they are, in order to manifest their freedom and their liberation. And so in that, I can't do it by myself, but we got to come together in order to make that happen. And so then for me, being somewhat of a strategist, you know, because like I was, I was raised with this revolutionary understanding, but like this stuff was passed on to me. It's kind of like my family business. And then not only that, like, as I've said, like I come from generations of people fighting for their freedom in this country. When my great, great, great grandfather, great, great, great grandmother were enslaved in this country. It became the legacy of each generation to fight in order to make sure that their people would be free. So that baton has been passed down to me. I get it. I, I embrace it. I love that. And I'm doing the best that I can to contribute to that. So then from that perspective, I have to assess the things that I feel are advantageous pieces for me to either spend time with or allocate resources towards, you know, I'm looking for allies. I'm looking for brothers. I'm looking for sisters. I'm looking for whoever who can be a part of this thing that we're trying to do in order to make this thing happen. So then when I analyze the Muslim community, although I'm somebody who has participated in this iteration of the American mainstream Muslim community at certain times, I do not in any way, shape or form see them as an ally. Because a lot of these things that we've already talked about, the confusion, there, there's there's so much division and infighting. And then when we analyze like the way that the institutions function, the space for black lives or brown lives within those communities is extremely marginalized. The appropriation is at an all-time high. But there's no concern for any of that when we are the foremothers of the forefathers of this tradition in this land. And then any real interfacing with the political, the social reality of this country in doing something that will possibly cause these people who have manufactured the system to look at your folks and be like, why are you doing that? Why are you over here protesting right now? Mm. Why are you really trying to rock with these people to try to help them get what they want? Don't you really want this money? Don't you want your family to be cool? Don't you want to keep your nice little bought out Costco spot, you know what I'm saying, for y'all to go pray? On Fridays, don't you want that? Then you need to keep that. You need to keep quiet. So there's so much that has happened in the historical spectrum of the interactions of those communities. But like I was saying last night, those bridges have been burned. And so now you got these people who are coming for you and you got no allies because you burned all those bridges. 
And then the other part about it, which is so cold, is the fact that what America has perfected by beating up, brutalizing, oppressing black people and indigenous people of this place, they now use those same techniques on these other communities. So you should have been allying with us mm. to help us in the fight that we've had since day one. Mm-hmm. That we still got going on, whether it was Clinton or it's going to be Trump, we still fight. They've perfected their brutality with brutal efficiency on us. And now they're going to come to use them same tactics on you. But you got nobody to help defend you now because you've intellectualized or you have compromised your tradition in a way where you've divorced it from that reality of these are your brothers and sisters and what your commitment, what your amana is supposed to be on you for honoring that responsibility. And so like, like when I when I be thinking, I'll be getting deep sometimes and sometimes I might be off, but the thoughts be there. And so like we kind of talked yesterday, I was saying how like Christianity was given to black people in a way to, to keep them in a position of servitude. And so certain ideologies or certain aspects of the religion were highlighted and other parts were muted. Islam is being taught, I believe, in a very similar way where it's becoming it's become a tool of the oppressor. And so I want these communities to be a certain way. I don't want them to be involved in any of this revolutionary action or activity, right? And it doesn't have to be anything tied to this madness that they want to talk about the war on terror. Right. We live in the belly of the beast. These people are the prison industrial complex. They're killing people in the street. they raping girls, using federal funds, whatever it might be. But there's so much that we can just talk about that's happening here. Right. We don't want these people connected with that. So, or I mean, yeah. A brand of Islam exactly. that, that makes it where they ain't going to focus on that. But if you want to feel good about you know, your community works, okay, take care of the homeless, have some little charity events. But you're not going to be focused on the real, the, the real cause of what the problems are. And you ain't going to do anything about that. Mm-hmm. And like, where is the check in the community right now to do that? Where is that conversation going to happen? And then it has to be more than a conversation. When we talk about the horizontal and the vertical, it has to manifest in a very real tangible way. And then, you know what I'm saying? Like the community that I represent, we suspicious of all them folks now, bro. Like mm-hmm. you ain't been here and now you're trying to show up because they coming for you. Yeah. So now you're looking for uh, somebody to come help you, but you wasn't willing to help us fight our battles. And then that's a whole mental and like an ego thing that has to be worked out. But like, cause people have to come together. So there has mm-hmm. to be a way to, to heal that. Mm-hmm. But still like all that stuff is very real and it's on the table. And I don't, I don't even know what the Muslim community is thinking about when it comes to that. I think they're so busy caught up in reacting mm-hmm. to this new condition that, you can't really process all of that. For sure. No, I mean, I, I totally agree, man. And um, absolutely. And I mean, if you think about, it, you know, being in the Bay Area and, you know, we, any critiques that we may have is all, all from love and wanting to see good. No doubt. Of course. But like, for instance, you know, somebody said who was a, Student at Zaytuna mentioned, you go four years at Zaytuna and just the, the 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 whole branding of it, the Muslim American liberal arts, right? The Muslim American experience has an address. Yeah. And this individual was saying, those kids are going four years. 
and they're learning a whole bunch about, uh, you know, European philosophy and the great, you know what I mean? But they don't know who Imam W.D. Muhammad is. Mm. Four years. I didn't even know. I didn't even in the curriculum, huh? You're not even, you're not really understanding the, the trajectory of that whole history. Yeah. I mean, like that should be a central aspect. Critique Elijah Muhammad. Critique, but at least study it. Understand it, you feel me? And so it's like, um, it's a strategic mistake, you know. And 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 this is all said with love, and, and you know, so many people that we know are involved in that project. But you know, in interest of, you know, man, we have to really do some muhasaba. We have to do some self check and be like, yo, we may be making some mistakes here, and we may be trying to do good. But we're overlooking some very key pieces, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's why, um, you know, these type of conversations are really important, man, because we got to have them. Like, we, it's it's too late, you know what I mean? Like, people that are saying, like, oh, Trump, like, give him a chance. Like, we'll see. Like, no, nah, there's not, like, we, there's no we'll see. Like, there it's now or never, no man. We'll like, see. either we're going to be united and, and we're going to have a plan of action to protect those people who stand to be, who are currently in an Obama presidency, the most vulnerable mm-hmm. and the victims of the system. Uh, or we should really just take the word Islam out of our vocabulary and take the blessed name of the Prophet mm-hmm. out of, off of our tongue. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. You real, but I mean, it's because it's not real. It's, we are perpetuating a farce. And the sad part about it is we have a historical tradition in this country of people who have used those same terms. Muhammad has been on their tongues. Islam has been what they call their way of life. And they've manifested all of that and they marshaled all the resources that they could bring with them to fight back against that system. And I'm not trying to say that everybody who professes that in this country has to become a revolutionary, but you cannot, you cannot say that these are the things that you believe in, and all of that, and be here and be like, yeah, we're going to help keep this thing moving, which has exploited, raped, and pillaged the entire planet, and is doing that to some of my brothers and sisters right here, right now, right in front of me. And so you say the, the Muslim American identity or experience has a physical address here in America. Bro, right around that freaking address like we were talking about yesterday, man, there's people being killed by police. Mm-hmm. I'm saying like when I was in the, I had this interview mm-hmm. the other day with uh, Davey D on Hard Knock Radio. And so I was talking about how like, brother, Oakland police, the San Francisco police, Alameda sheriffs, Richmond PD, they're running a sex ring on black and brown girls right now. And we had this story break about this one young girl that they were doing. They were doing this to her while she was a minor. This is happening right across the street from where you are. You have no commentary on that? I'm saying we're trying to enjoin good and forbid the evil. Right. You know what I'm saying? We want to try to make sure that we represent a tradition where... the our Prophet you know what I'm saying? He was supposed to be a mercy to all of the worlds. Like where where do we stand yeah. on that? You know what I'm saying? And how do we try to usher in a, a movement or a place and a time where mercy is for everybody or peace mm-hmm. is for everybody? 
you have to stand for something. I have absolutely no clue what these people stand for. And so we're perpetuating a farce because the nation have a critique of them all you want. Other iterations of like black proto-Islamic movements, the people that I come from, my great, great, great grandfather, bro, like it was very clear. And, you know, like pulling something from Malcolm, the whole idea of like the house Negro or the field Negro, Mm -hmm. like Islam was a tool of the field Negro. And so it was used to try to help them in their cause. It's been that way. What are y'all doing now? Y'all trying to be all up in the house. All up in the house. White house, you know what I'm saying? Don't matter what else we talk about. Cats is up in that joint. And they want to they want to, to secure that position. I mean, that's a problem, bro. And so, like you're saying, like there has to be something where people are taking an accounting of what they're doing. And you look at the... Uh... One of these big Muslim conferences, I don't even remember which one, but they had, what was his name? Kizer Khan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of these big Muslim conferences, they got Kizer Khan, and his whole claim to fame is that his son fought and died for America, right? Like in Iraq or something. I don't know the whole story, but it's like... And someone was telling me then they had that at, at the same time they had a, Mal, uh, a Muhammad Ali tribute. Yeah. Hold on. Like, let's just really think about this. Yeah. Muhammad Ali was a great boxer, the greatest boxer that ever lived. But is that why we're talking about Muhammad Ali? No. We're talking about Muhammad Ali because of the moral stances he took. Yeah. One of the chief ones against the war. Yeah. Vietnam. No Viet Cong never called me nigga. Exactly. And and getting stripped of his title. Yeah. Willing to go to prison. Yeah. Like like what what courage? Like I'm not running. I'm not leaving the country. I'm standing and fighting. If and they throw me in prison, they throw me everything, bro. And so hold on. So but now you know and most of the young soldiers that get caught up in this, it's it's just a tragedy. It's not really to to blame them, but the point being of just the the inability to see, you're celebrating someone who unfortunately got pulled into this. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, it's the tribute of the individual who took the moral stance against the mil- military industrial complex. Yeah. Like where is the Muslims that are critiquing? See, I think because of 9-11 and because of these, this fear, you know, Muslims are afraid... I, I'm not an extremist. I'm not a terrorist. Okay, don't be an extremist. Don't be a terrorist. But you can't actually have a critique of the military-industrial complex, the prison-industrial complex, the dark, dark realities that are at play yeah. in this country. Yeah. So you get you get kind of neutralized by fear. I don't want to say anything. I just want to seem normal. So like. You know, I'm going to celebrate Christmas and I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. And look, I'm just exactly the same. You see what I'm saying? And those of us that came to Islam as a liberation, as a transformation, as a way to destroy the idols of our time and see it as as something that totally wipes away those and we're ready for a total transformation, uh, come into something which is saying, 
Well, no, like we don't really want to change actually that much. Like, yeah. We just want to pray yeah. in our in our Costco Business Park mosque. But other than that, like we just want to be a well-paid cog in the matrix. Exactly. And if you're if you're getting smashed on by the matrix and you're you're losing out in the matrix, that sucks. You know, you should really focus on, you know, maybe education and 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 other things that will then allow you to be a little bit higher in the matrix. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. And so they're perpetuating the narrative of white supremacy, which as we've been saying in this conversation, bro, it's it's the cancer that's killing off this world because it's tied to all these other things. You, the military industrial complex is a byproduct of that. The the predatory capitalistic system is a byproduct mm. of that. Like all of that. The reason why you had to leave your country to begin with, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Well, it's like because these folks was over there trying to take your resources in your country. Y'all couldn't stay there. You know what I'm saying? They either started some war or was funding somebody that was fighting something in order to try to gain access to something and y'all had to dip. And so now you here and now you just going to go on with it and they still doing whatever they doing to your homeland. And then you ain't helping the people who already been here and have no, no awareness of that at all, which is like in many ways, like some of the, like the most disgusting part of it. Mm. Like, how can you do that? And that, that really becomes like the commercialization or like the, Freaking Walt Disney or the McDonald's mm. Apple computer joint, you take Dr. King's image mm-hmm. and you put that in your your ad campaign. You got Dr. King Happy Meals on his birthday. You feel me? Mm. To help you sell your product, to make you make money. And so the Muslim community is appropriating in order to make them look better or to gain them uh, cultural capital, mm. but doing it in the most ugly and disgusting ways you feel me? and they have an absolutely no idea that they're doing that wrong and then feel that like we're really here for the sake of humanity and trying to make things better do you think though that like a trump presidency will force people to re re uh, consider these things or 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 not ah, man, that's a good question and like i'm really gonna try to answer that <laughs> um like it's gonna it's a wake up for some people, and I don't know, I really don't know what that wake up will entail for them, like how far they'll go because you had people who they were adamant they were out there in the street for a couple of days, people ain't in the street no more, and for me, you should be in the street all the time, you should be in the street with Obama, we should have been in the street with George W. Bush, we should have been in the street with Clinton, you know what I'm saying trying to tear the whole thing down, so whether it was Hillary Trump. That should have happened. But the, the other part, bro, if it was if it was Hillary Clinton that would have won, then Cass would have been at the house, chilling, happy. I'm saying playing they little in NBA 2K 17 or Madden or watching they little Netflix joints. Nothing. No peep from any of them cats. And the same stuff would be happening on the foreign level and domestically, the same thing. You know, we got our brothers and sisters right now in Standing Rock. That's happening on Obama's watch. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's problems all the time. But they would have been posted. So I don't know what it's going to be. Some people got got the wake-up call. But is it going to drive them to action? I don't know. And if they don't have the understanding, it's one thing to respond to something like, okay, you you get stabbed by something. And so, oh, you, you get, you're hurt by the pain. And so you're caught up in the reaction of that injury that happened at that time. But then over time, it heals. 
Okay. Or you find a way to deal with the fact that, okay, yeah, my maybe my thumb ain't going to work as well as it used to, but I'll, I'll make it work anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. And regardless of it being Trump, like if you understand the historical legacy of this place, you should already be on this other side doing something about it. We can't be comfortable. And we love our families. We love our friends. We love our communities and all that. And that's beautiful. That's great. Love them for as long as you have them. But we can't be comfortable, man, when something this blatant and this wrong exists. And that's the world that we live in. And we're called to do something about that. And we can't be over here just ignoring our reality. Mm -hmm. So if we pivot a little bit, because I know you've been really active um, in the Bay Area scene with various movements that are going on. And I haven't really been in, in the Bay for, for nine months, but, you know, I know you've been like with Elaine Brown and, you know, there's been like this great anniversary of the Black Panthers, 50th wow. anniversary. Yeah. So, so what are some of the good things that you see going on right now? I mean, one thing, like we kind of talked about it a little bit yesterday. I don't know if you were there at that time, but like using that, the quote about Che, about like people, revolutionary being guided by a deep sense of love. Like we're living in a time where people are offended by the civilization that they live in because of what it's doing to people that they care about. And so one of the things that Huey P. Newton, so talking about the Black Panther Party, like he would, he said that, and he was speaking about technology specifically, but he was saying that, the oppressor will eventually create the conditions for overthrowing their oppression. Mm-hmm. And so if the people who are being oppressed or colonized can master the technology of that day, and then they'd be able to use it against their oppressor to then secure their freedom and their liberation, right? So it's a very deep statement. And so when you analyze the civil rights movement, that's exactly what Dr. King did. You had televisions in everybody's homes, right? So then you got people trying to make money off of the media. And so they start making money. They got these channels and then they, um, they want to show the news and they got all this stuff going. And so Dr. King and then other people who participated in the civil rights movement, they're like, well, let's get this attention, especially in the Cold War climate where America's trying to be, we are the moral and the ethical authority of the world and we're better than these other people over here. And so you start seeing police water hoses and sicking dogs and beating folks just because they say they want to write the vote or they want to eat at this place or they want this, right? So it gets beamed across millions of television sets all throughout the United States. And then it starts going global. So people are seeing this situation all throughout the world. So it becomes the people who are being oppressed, mastering the technology of their oppressor to use it against them. Mm-hmm. And why were they doing that? Because they love their people. And so they were responding from a place of love for the people that they care about. So the oppressor creates the context for revolutionary people. And these are ordinary people, but they church going folk, you know what I'm saying? They mm-hmm. janitors, they teachers, they whatever. It's not like they was born, raised, ready to fight. But I love my people and I hate the way that they're being treated. And so you have created a context for revolution. And so fast forward to 2016, moving into 2017, I believe a similar thing is happening where you have people who have a deep sense of love for who they are and their people and they're being disrespected by the world that they live in and they know it's wrong, you're creating conditions again for a revolutionary people and technology has changed. Well, we're conducting an interview right now. You got a microphone, USB plugged into the computer. You feel me? 
we can use our technology in order to marshal resources for what we're trying to accomplish. And that's a beautiful thing. But it's that love and it's that understanding, which is the spark of all of it. And so because we understand who we are, we understand where we are, and we love our people, we're moved to do something about it. And so we can utilize, going back to Dr. Huey P. Newton, we can utilize the technology of the resources we have of our day and move from a place of love to do something revolutionary in our society. And so I'm excited by that. And then I'm excited to be connected to the history of that. Like when I sit with Elaine Brown, bro, I mean, she was the chairperson of the Black Panther Party. She inherited the mantle of leadership from Huey P. Newton. You know what I'm saying? So like, that's sacred history. That's sacred knowledge, bro. And then like in our tradition, we really appreciate a lineage of knowledge, an unbroken chain going back centuries. This was passed down from this person's tongue and heart to this next person and passed down to this next person where I'm sitting at the feet of my elders and I'm getting broken off with the illest type of wisdom. You feel me? And that's dope for me. Bro. I love that. And it's it's been like moving at light speed in terms of understanding. And I've been held accountable a couple of times for things that I did wrong. And I mean, she don't play, bro. Like, if I do something wrong, she'd be on my line hard. Yeah. And I love that. And I've learned as a like result. Like what? Like things you said or just... Yeah, things that I said or things that I've done. Or at times when I said something and like my analysis of something wasn't correct and it really reflected that. Mm. And she saw that and she wanted to make sure that I knew what was up. And mm. there'll be times where something will happen and she'll be like, Tyson, I really want you to understand what's going on right here, right now. Like we had a, a situation recently where there was a person that we were doing some work with and that person decided not to to work with the community group that we're a part of and then broke off and wanted to do their own thing and like start working on the same issue, but separate. And so she was like, Tyson, I really want you to understand what's happening. This is that COINTELPRO type stuff. So you mentioned Eldridge Cleaver earlier. Like we don't talk about Eldridge much mm-hmm. because Eldridge was part of a splitting in the Black Panther Party where Panthers actually got killed, bro. Mm-hmm. So Eldridge and his wife, Kathleen, and I'm not trying to knock them. Like I didn't live through that history. Right. So like I don't have comrades in the ground as a result of that, but she does. Mm-hmm. And he broke off on some, you know, theoretical differences and then right. wanted to do some other stuff. But Cass got killed and the, and the government helped help increase that separation between those two different camps. He was on one side, Eldridge was on another side. But folks got lit up and killed as a result of that. So she lives that experience. And she was like, this is on that COINTELPRO type division where you can't break up the movement if you're really about the movement. You can't put your personal feelings and any of this egotistic stuff when we talk about like diseases of the heart, you can't allow that stuff to to divert you from what the true purpose is. We need to work as a unified body in order to manifest what we're trying to accomplish. And so this person broke off and now they're trying to do the same thing, but they're doing it in a different way. And it's created confusion. It's created all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the government tried to do that and is still trying to do that. But like she'll highlight moments like that because she wants me to see it and understand it on a deep level. Like you can't get that in a book, bro. Mm-hmm. Like I'm getting that from from the source. And that's dope. Yeah, that's heavy, man. 
Yeah, it's very uh, unique times, man. And um, I mean, it's still shocking, bro. Cause I was in uh, I was in Germany when like Trump was elected, and just seeing like the way the German people freaked out, man. Yeah. Cause you know they're remembering Hitler, and they're remembering, and they're worried about far right movements rising up in, in Europe. And just seeing the front page of the German newspaper just said, oh, my God, what will become of the world? Uh, <laughs> like, just the heaviness, the global heaviness. Like, people outside of America are very concerned. Obviously, inside of America. But if there is any silver lining, because we always got to try to be positive while being honest about the, the no doubt. Measure, is that, you know, like, one hopeful thing I'm seeing is, like, the Democratic Party is kind of really acknowledging that there's two wings of the Democratic Party now. Mm-hmm. There's those that are aligned with Wall Street and those that are more aligned with Occupy Wall Street. And those can't be together. Like You mm-hmm. can't be the same group yeah. and have, that's the exact opposite. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, you know, and that's why the Clinton whole campaign was ridiculous. Yeah. Because you're trying to like speak in the language of Occupy Wall Street and co-opt that, yeah. And and but then at the same time, Goldman Sachs three hundred thousand dollars for a speaking fee, like yeah, come on, yeah. And people saw through that too. Like the Democrats were so arrogant in thinking that in the present climate in America that they could put that individual, just the ultimate representation of Washington insider. You know, the corrupt rot at the center of the establishment on both parties. Like, this was a straight, like, people didn't want that. People didn't want the mainstream Republican candidates. Trump, he's not a Republican. He don't care. He doesn't, he's not. He's like an insurgent candidate on the right. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And then Sanders' success, despite the way that they tried to destroy his candidacy from jump, because they already chose Hillary. Yeah. And all the DNC email leaks show this unequivocally beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yep. That they were actively trying to minimize him. And how can we, you know, push him aside and things like that? And all the polling showing that Sanders would have done better against Trump than Hillary. But still. So, and then, you know, now the point is like, because Hillary lost, if she would have won, they would never be talking about Keith Ellison perhaps being the head of the DNC. Mm-hmm. Now they're talking about that. Mm-hmm. But see, I don't have any hope in the Democratic Party personally because I don't think... I share that. <laughs> they're not going to... like the the the, And so the Sanders, Ellison, and those that are like really more aligned in many of the principles of really saying and identifying that like, you know, this system is not set up to benefit the people. Yeah. It's, set, it's set up to maintain the benefit of a small group and to filter enough benefit to a middle, a middle class that it stabilizes the system. So there's not going to be that rebellion. It's not going to create yeah. the circumstances where enough people are like, oh, well, forget this because I'm not benefiting anyway. Might as well burn down the system. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, if I'm going to have to be serving people and, you know, suffering, I may as well try to like make something happen. Yeah. So um, if there's any hope, if there's any silver lining, if there's anything good that can come about from a Trump presidency, which 
yeah, Allah, it's still very strange to even say that, is that it will force more people to realize the circumstances that we're under. Because I was thinking about if there was an Occupy Wall Street type movement under Trump. You know, under Obama, a lot of people generally supported, but they were comfortable. Well, we, we have a nice we have a nice black president and he's liberal and he's supporting this. So I'm not actually going to take to the streets, even though I support a lot of the things they're talking about by Wall Street. But under a Trump presidency, it gets a little bit different because just how he would respond is a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then there's a potential that a wider swath of the country can be like, yo, we really have to make a stand because... And, and and who knows? You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to call it, but you know. Yeah, I feel you on that. Like, I don't know if that will be the response. Mm-hmm. I would love whatever, whatever ushers in an era where people begin to take a stand and have a better understanding of their reality and what they need to do in the face of that. I'm with that. And so my people have been over here fighting since day one. And we've been waiting for other people to join this fight so we can make this thing happen. So if people respond to a Trump presidency in that way, that's fine. Fine by me. You know, like the game has already been going. Cats need to jump in. They need to get off the sidelines. Mm-hmm. So we waiting for whatever that is. But like, be it the Republicans, be it the Democrats, the governmental system does not benefit us the way that it is. And then ultimately, it ain't even the thing that's running everything. It's the people behind it that are putting the money into that, that are running that. And so that understanding is also very important. But whatever forces people to move, I'm I'm open. Let's go. It's time, (laughs) bro. It's been time. So I do feel there are people who have had an awakening. And so it's just a matter of seeing what they're going to do. But then hopefully they'll be rooted in a much deeper understanding of the reality that they're facing. And then they can also plug into the tradition. You know, we've used that term a lot. And then we represent a tradition, a sacred tradition. I need to plug into the tradition because the tradition will give us guidance for what we need to do. And, you know, some of it might not be appropriate in, in our contemporary state, but that's all right. Still, it's better to have the information and not need to use it than not have the information at all. So let's get an understanding. Let's let's be connected to our historical tradition. And then let's do something that has value and meaning. And that's the other thing that I, I really feel about the time, like the silver lining and not being not having it tied to that personality of Trump. I feel the silver lining is we have been afforded an opportunity to do something of meaning. And we're in the place, bro. We're in the place where the whole thing came from. Our lives can have value and meaning because we are the ones who have been selected for this time. So then what are we going to do? Yeah, and I mean, art, music, writing, poetry, you know, video, audio, with the, the tools of connection, the, just, the fact that we're so inter- all interconnected at this point, you know, um, you know, you really, if you really hit on the nerve, if you really present a poem or a song or a book 
that really taps into and and with excellence and beauty sh- you know shows the reality i mean it can spread like wildfire you know mm-hmm. what I mean? and it can really spark you know spark a movement spark a transformation in even one person which will then radiate out so alhamdulillah man i look forward to reading your book and uh where can people check out your book but also just your work in general website tysonamir.com the book is black boy poems they can go to the website for that blackboypoems.com and the thing that's real dope which is going to be ready in a little bit is i got videos for all the poems happening so people be able to if they're more visual we got you <laughs> if you mm-hmm. you know want to just read the joint we got you on that too and you know the book is available in paperback and also in in ebook form so make it easy for people to be able to get it yeah, and you've been doing like events around it and performing and, and reading, yeah, not, readings gonna, and stuff. It's gonna keep going. Yeah, no, I think like some some online. Like I'm glad you're putting out those videos because I feel like, uh, you know, a recitation and then conversation around that could be really powerful and you know getting that, just getting that up and letting people letting that circulate and percolate. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, bro. Thank you, man. For sure. Thank you. Thank you.